Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Robin Williams, apparent suicide, has us not only remembering his life and talent, but trying to come to terms with the reality of suicide. And the statistics are startling. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide claims more than 38,000 lives each year in the United States alone, with someone dying uh, by suicide every 13.7 minutes. A suicide attempt is made every minute of every day, resulting in nearly one million attempts made annually. Utah author and suicide prevention advocate Wendy Parmley knows this reality all too well. Her new book, Hope After Suicide, One Woman's Journey from Darkness to Light, details her journey following the suicide death of her mother nearly 40 years ago. Wendy Parmley was 12 years old at the time, the oldest of five children. Her mother was just 31. For years, she locked away the pain of her mother's death, but after a stabling bike accident in September of 2011 that left her unable to return to her nursing career, she began to write her mother's story. And her own healing journey began, or I guess I should say Wendy Parmley continued. You were in therapy before this. Wendy Parmley has uh, traveled up to be with us from her home in Orem, joins us in studio. Thank you so much. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Tom, for having me here. And you are involved in suicide prevention. You're uh, working with Hope for Utah. It's yes. a, good, a good organization. Helps, uh, I think, a special uh, focus on teens, teen suicide. Yes, yes. And then the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Yes, I uh, will be participating in the Out of the Darkness Walks um, in Richfield on September 6th, for those of you who, who want to participate, or Salt Lake City on September 13th. And there are two others, one in St. George and um, one, I believe, up here in Ogden, and I'm not, I'm not sure uh, the dates on those. Uh, so Out of the Darkness Walks, what are these? Do they want to focus awareness? What are, what are you trying yeah, to do Yeah, Suicide these? Prevention mm-hmm. Awareness. Yes. Uh, so let's uh, let's uh, maybe we could start with um, uh, your book is is coming out um, coincident with the, with the death of Robin Williams, um, you know, t- tragic and unfortunate, but it does focus our minds on on this topic when somebody that we feel is sort of part of the family uh, apparently takes his own life. What was your reaction? I was devastated at the news, um, just heartsick, uh, mostly thinking about his family. And I know all of us considered him family as we saw him on the screen, but um, he has a wife, he has children, and and we will heal much, much quicker than he will, or than they will, um, at, the, at uh, you know, remembering his life and, and the after effects of his death. Uh, I like this quote um, that's included in the, you know, the, the praise for the book, the blurbs for the book. Uh, Melissa Paul, nurse educator, she says, uh, any loss is painful. But when that loss comes because of a suicide, the pain and grief take on an entirely different persona. Yes, yes. Um, you can't even imagine unless you've gone through it. And unfortunately, too many of us have. But um, there are so many questions, the questions that linger. Um, <clears throat> not only is it um, difficult to lose somebody immediately, somebody who wasn't dying, um, we didn't have time to repair, but the fact that they took their own life makes it entirely different than than even somebody who dies in a car wreck unexpectedly. And I one of the biggest questions I'm sure is why. Exactly. We you know if we haven't had anyone or if we, if we haven't had suicidal tendencies it's hard for us to bridge that gap and understand why. Exactly. We are programmed to live. Mm-hmm. We fight our entire lives for life and um, and to try to get in, inside somebody's mind who 
is so dark and so depressed and despondent and discouraged. And to understand how leaving this world is the only answer they can see. It's very difficult for those of us who haven't been in that position before. Hmm. I've pulled up um, uh, at at your uh, urging the uh, American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention website. And I'm, I'm looking at the page, Key Research Findings. This is interesting. I hadn't thought about this. They say because of the stigma surrounding suicide, uh, that's limited society's investment in suicide research. That is surprising, but it's understandable. We can hardly say the word suicide in, in normal conversation. Um, I was, gosh, 25 years old with my second child, and somebody asked me how my mom died, and I told told that person that she died of a heart attack. I could not mm. say she died of suicide. Yeah, I, I think there is still a, a stigma. Do you think that's lessening or do you know, think they're well, making certainly, a Well, certainly this uh, experience with Robin Williams has offered an, us an opportunity to talk about suicide and uh, the, the risk factors, the signs, the symptoms, and um, to tear down some of that stigma. But, but um, there, there is still a strong stigma. Mm. And uh, according to the same site, um, they outline some of the underlying reasons, uh, some of those be mental disorders. Depression, we know, is a big yes. is a big factor. Um, some of the risk factors, previous suicide attempts, uh, some people, you know, attempt it several times before they're finally su- you know, successful. Family history of suicide, um, medical conditions and pain, sometimes that's the, uh, that's the reason. And um, relationship between environmental stressors, mental disorders, and suicide risk. And then there's um, bullying is talked about, and I'm, I'm sure that's uh, something that Hope for Utah works with. Yes, yes, especially with those those children and teens. And suicide contagion, <laughs> and we've all seen this. Sometimes it comes in groups. People, I guess, if if they're thinking about it, or uh, you know, if somebody else commits suicide, then that that pushes them as well. Yes, it becomes their way out as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could uh, we could talk about your your mother. Um, you're 12 years old oldest of five children. Um, and tell us about that, that day. Well, my bedroom was in the basement, and, um, and I woke to my dad screaming, screaming my mom's name, and ran up the stairs, and uh, he, was, he was a crazy man. He was still in his pajamas, um, and he did not look even like my dad. He uh, put me in charge of the children, and I picked up my crying baby sister out of the, out of her crib. She was one, one years old, and um, he ran out the house and down to his good friend, our our ward's bishop. He was in the bishopric at the time, and um, pounded on their door, and and I sat there at the top of the stairs. He told me not to go into the bathroom. I'm glad that I didn't, and. Um, and we waited for for our bishop and his good wife to return with my dad. Yeah, just uh, just just amazing. It was only years later, I think you you talked to your dad about you know I want to know exactly. Yes, what in happened? Fact, how his yes. mother? You know what was the scene? Yes, and um, without getting into details of the of the scene, oftentimes that can be a trigger for somebody else who has gone through. Um, who has gone through suicide in their family and um, bring up really horrible memories for them. 
I did ask details, however, because for me, it was important to uncover the wound that I had buried so long ago. And he freely shared some of those details. And, um, and it was important. It was important in my healing process, not to say that it's important for everybody necessarily in their own healing process. But for me, it was important to not be afraid of that scene any longer. And, um, and certainly, I'm sure my imagination was much worse than it really was. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, was good for me to talk with my dad, who actually sees that scene every day in his mind, mm-hmm. um, as he's the one who found my mom. Wow. You were mentioning before we went on the air that's uh, somewhat akin to, to being a war veteran, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the post-traumatic stress disorder that accompanies suicide loss is very real. Uh, For myself, I didn't understand that I had this chronic PTSD um, with the symptoms of sleepless nights and fear and, you know, afraid of of the dark and afraid of being murdered myself. Um, All these twisted thoughts that that would creep in. Um, Anger, uh, hyper vigilant um, and startle reflexes, all of those things that accompany PTSD are very real. Those same things happen in our war veterans, um, and they happen with the, the suicide survivors. Hard enough for an adult to deal with this, but you're 12 years old, and your siblings are younger than that. Right? Yes, yes. Um, did did you talk at all in the family about, about this? No, no. W- which is kind of typical, I think, right? Oh, yes, um, Gratefully, we are a little bit more open in our society today, but my dad told us that she died of a heart attack, and that was um, believable because six months earlier, she had had one. She had had a cardiac arrest. Uh, The next day after her death, though, a friend of mine who was the police chief's son, he came up to me and told me how she died, Mm. and I did not believe him, and I ran home screaming and Uh, crazy myself and dad, dad, um, you know, Brad told me that mom, mom ended her life. Is that true? And he, he took me to my room and he said, yes. Hmm. Uh, I guess kids, kids know, don't they? Kids will find out, right? (laughs) If you try to keep from the network of kids, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get the word out. What about your younger siblings? Did they They did not know. Now, I believe that my dad also told my brother just younger than me. Um, He was 10, almost 11 at the time. And I believe we were the only two who knew as I interviewed my siblings, um, gosh, four or five years ago, and and talked to them about the timing of when they found out. They found out from their friends, but it was many years later. My brother, who was four at the time of my mom's death, learned from a friend when he was 11. And my youngest sister was 13 when she learned. She was one at the time of my mom's death. And my uh, other sister, who was seven, learned years later, too, from a friend. We mm. were protected by the adults. Yeah. Now, um, according to, you know, if you'd have had the, uh, you know, Hope for Utah or the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention or, or, you know, somebody who could use best practices today, what should have happened? Well, certainly we should have been involved in some therapy. You know, um, I would hope that Primary Children's Medical Center, I don't know this, but I'm certain that they're involved in 
what we call postvention support. Um, there are suicide survivor support groups. Uh, there are groups meant for children, and there are groups meant for teens and, and adults um, where we can come together with other survivors of suicide and and not feel judged to understand that the person across the room is in the exact same position that we find ourselves in and to offer some support. Also, individual counseling, um, the opportunity to, to dialogue and to talk, um, age appropriate, of course, um, as questions are asked, that they're answered honestly, that that we don't tell children, your mom died of a heart attack. Mm, yeah. Uh, is it is it that stigma? You're feeling judged? Is that why people don't get into therapy or, or whatever they need sooner? Um, I, you know, back in 1975, I'm not sure that it was as, as accessible. Uh, for my own experience, it was the stigma. And, and really, you know, pull yourself up and move forward. Life goes on. And I suspect that 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 continues today. I do believe that therapy is much more readily accessible. But still, there's this um, feeling, as I've I've watched um, somebody in my own congregation, in my own ward, struggle after the suicide death of her husband, um, it's been, I believe, almost four years. She still continues with PTSD. She still continues with needs for appropriate therapy and support from her congregation, but the the members have moved forward. Mm-hmm. You know, they they it's four years later in their minds she should be better by now. But she's not. Mm-hmm. And she may never be. Um, but but it's important for all of us to understand that situation and to reach out and to not expect that life just continues on as it was before. I think that's hard for people, isn't it, to, you know, the, they want to put a timetable on it, you know. Yes. Why are you still grieving? Why are yes. you still having troubles? Uh, yes. I guess because if you don't go through it, you aren't, you aren't affected the same way. So yes. what, what can I do for a friend who's, uh, you know, had a suicide in the family or whatever it is? What can I do to, to, to better reach out and help them? Well, I think let them verbalize. Um, it's okay to ask, how, how are you doing? Uh, is there anything I can do? And, and to continue those conversations, I think initially we are very good, you know, as, as neighbors and friends to reach out and to offer our condolences, um, but we're uncomfortable talking about the death or how that individual died. And some people want to talk about about that with their friends and their family, and others aren't ready yet. So it's important for us to just be sensitive to where that person is, but to understand that grief takes all sorts of um, various forms, and, and there isn't a timetable. It can take years and years and years, and that person will never be the same. Not to say that that's a bad thing necessarily, but um, but that person will be will be impacted for the rest of their life. We're talking with Wendy Parmley. Uh, her new book out from uh, Cedar Fort uh, Press is Hope After Suicide. Uh, she details uh, her journey following the uh, suicide death of her mother. Her mother was 31, and uh, Wendy Parmley was 12, oldest of five children. 
And uh, we are responding to uh, not only the book, but Robin Williams' apparent suicide. It happened just last week. And that's got us, I think, uh, thinking about suicide in, in a uh, more concentrated way, which is probably a, a good thing to, to, to you know, face up to this and see what we can do in terms of suicide prevention. Wendy Parmley is a suicide uh, prevention advocate, and uh, she'll be involved in a couple of the, uh, the what do they call them, Out of the Darkness? Out of walks. the Darkness Community Walks, yes. Uh, you'll be at Richfield. Yes. Their walk on September 6th. Yes. And there are others in Utah, so uh, uh, I guess maybe the best place to, to go is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Yes, their website. The, those walks. They, these uh, try to shine light on, uh, on suicide, suicide prevention, what we can do. Uh, these statistics are alarming. We've uh, cited those before. Uh, 38,000 lives each year lost in the United States alone to suicide. A suicide attempt is made every minute of every day. That's nearly one million attempts made annually. So there is much more we can do on this. We'll uh, tell more of Wendy Parmley's story and much more, of course, on this topic following this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crown Brothers Addison Brett in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring Coke Madame and Coke Monsieur. Methwee sourdough bread, ham, and cheese. Menu details at crumbrothers.com. This Thursday morning on the Zesty Garden, we'll have a discussion with USU Extension fruit specialist Brent Black about brambles, including results of taste test trials and some new varieties of raspberries and blackberries. You'll find out which ones have great flavor and will grow well in your area. Then we introduce Going Native, a discussion of native and drought-tolerant plants to incorporate into your garden. They're easy to grow and readily available. That's this Thursday morning at 10 on the next Zesty Garden. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Robin Williams' apparent suicide has us not only remembering his life and talent, but trying to come to terms with the reality of suicide. These statistics are quite stark. American Foundation for Suicide Prevention says that uh, suicide claims more than 38,000 lives each year in the United States alone, with someone dying by suicide every 13.7 minutes, and a suicide attempt is made every minute of every day, resulting in nearly one million attempts made annually in the U.S. Utah author and suicide prevention advocate Wendy Parmley knows this reality all too well. Her book... Hope After Suicide is just out. It details her journey following the suicide death of her mother nearly 40 years ago. Wendy Parmley was 12 years old at the time, the oldest of five children. Her mother was just 31. So uh, Wendy Parmley, uh, who joins us in studio, uh, let me, before we uh, go back to, to our guest, uh, open the phone lines. We'd uh, like to hear your story. If you'd like to, like to share your story, perhaps you... Uh, I have survived a suicide of a family member or or friend. Uh, you're concerned about the uh, the topic. Um, anything you'd like to express, we would uh, love you to do so on the program today. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear your story, your question or comment. And the email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Wendy Parmley, uh, you were telling me during the break, um, this really hits home in Utah. I don't have suicide statistics for Utah, but you you were telling us, uh, why don't you uh, repeat that statistic you were telling me? Well, Utah ranks first in the the country for the uh, number of folks with mental illness. 
uh, one in five individuals in our in our state um, suffers with some sort of mental illness, and uh, many of those are serious: bipolar, depression, schizophrenia. Um, and and I think when we talk about suicide stigma, there's a stigma also with having a mental illness. We would not be afraid to tell our friend that we're on a blood pressure medication, and yet we cringe if they find out we're on an antidepressant, and that sh- shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we can't talk about depression, you know, one of the results is suicide, right? If untreated depression yes. can yes. sometimes lead to suicide. Yes. It's very, very serious. I think there's a lot of pressure in the state as well, and there have been studies documenting this as well, that, you know, a lot of pressure, perfectionism, you know, the, those sorts of pressures. Yes. Now, sometimes we we want to blame it on our culture, um, our religiosity, our, um, our religion, our congregations. But really, research shows that those who are more involved in religion, more spiritual, more... Um, active in their church, whichever church that is, they are less likely to um, end their life. Hmm. Not exactly sure why that is, and but I think that it's important for us to um, understand that it's not religion per se that that increases the risk of suicide, and, and it, it's a complex illness, um, health condition, health, health concern. And that is why research is so important. And uh, we, we should uh, add, as we said before, research shows it's not, it's not just depression or mental illness. Uh, sometimes it's uh, serious pain, you know, physical pain. Exactly. Um, sometimes, you know, this is all speculation, but uh, apparently Robin Williams was, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Perhaps that added to some other problems, you know. We don't know, but... Yeah, well, we do know that Parkinson's disease is a disease of the brain, Mm -hmm. as are mental health um, disorders, uh, bipolar, and and those things. They they impact the brain. The brain chemistry is impaired, and the firing of the neurons in the brain, you know, is impaired. Parkinson's affects all of that, and so the combination certainly can lead to increased depression and despair and hopelessness. And I think sometimes in uh, in teens, for example, they, they haven't learned skills of resilience. They, you know, sometimes get tunnel vision and feel it's not going to get better. And, and, and if it's something like bullying happens or you get, uh, you know, teen depression, that could be especially. Uh, yes. Problematic. And teens are more impulsive. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't help. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's a wonder we all survive our teen years. I, I think of, you know, um, stupid things I did in the automobile, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so before we get back into your story, uh, Wendy Parmley, what are some what are some signs to look for? Well, and and this gets into we should look for signs. We should do all we can. On the other hand. If you have a family member commit suicide, you, I guess you, you probably feel guilty. And what could I have done more? And what, you know? Right. So there's a balancing right. act there. but There is. We do need to be aware of the signs of suicide. Uh, 50 to 70 percent of people who are suicidal will tell somebody. And we need to educate our children. We need to educate each other that, that we need to act on that. It's not simply, oh, my gosh, I wish my life would end today, you know, because we're exasperated with work. It is... Um, it is a clear plan to end their life. And uh, my mother told her sisters 
that she was going to end her life. And she told them how she would do it. And she practiced. And um, and we didn't understand how we could help her. I didn't know this until after her death that, that those were things that were going on. But her sisters were at a loss. They didn't know how to help her. They couldn't force her into counseling or into seeing a psychiatrist. They suggested that. But um, I think that um, we need to take that seriously. So the individual will look for ways that they can end their life. Talk about a specific suicide plan. Hopeless, no reason to live. Can't get out of bed. Can't sleep. That's another symptom. Um, Feeling trapped, like they're a burden to their family. Really, you know, we hear sometimes people say, oh, suicide is the most selfish thing you can do. And in reality, that suicidal person is thinking that they are going to free their family from their burden, mm-hmm. uh, the burden that they've, that they've uh, given to their family. Um, having intense anxiety or panic attacks, losing interest in things, uh, f- a family member was very, very depressed in in my own experience and very despondent and could not get out of bed, grades plummeted. And those are all symptoms that something is very, very awry. Insomnia, we talked about becoming socially withdrawn. You, You can see in an affect, there's this flat despondence, no life in the eyes, um, irritable and agitated, very angry, quick to rage even, and talking about, you know, seeking revenge or for being victimized or rejected. Uh, Those are all serious warning signs. And it's okay to ask, are you thinking of ending your life? Do you have a plan? Okay, we need to go to the emergency room, you know, ass- assessing the seriousness of that. It's okay to call 911. It's okay to, um, to seek help. It's okay to sleep in the bedroom of somebody, you know, who is in your family who you're concerned about. or uh, and, and certainly removing all of medications that they might have access to or things that they could hurt themselves with is very important. But the most important thing is to seek professional help, whether that's through the emergency room or if you can get into a, you know, a psychologist, a therapist immediately. It, it can't be in three weeks. It has to be immediate intervention. Sometimes we think, I think, um, that if you talk about it with the person, that will only move them down the path to, to suicide. That's not the case at all. Um, actually, although they they may feel that same stigma and oh my gosh I have these thoughts I am terribly flawed because I have these thoughts it can sometimes be such a relief to be able to say yes I've been thinking about ending my life I don't want to live any longer I can't carry this pain any longer and and that's the first step in in being able to seek treatment mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Wendy Parmley. She lives in Orem, and uh, she grew up in Utah Valley. Her book is Hope After Suicide, One Woman's Journey from Darkness to Light. Her mother was 31 when she committed suicide. Wendy Parmley was 12 years old, oldest of five children. She dealt with, I guess it was post-traumatic 
stress disorder. Yes, PTSD you, you, and some depression. For years and years after, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so we're going to get into um, how Wendy Parmley started to come to terms with this. It's As you're an adult, right? You have kids of your own, I think. Yes. And, uh, um, but if you'd like to join the conversation here, we would uh, love for you to do so, either telling your own story or perhaps you have a question or comment on uh, this uh, topic, we're talking about suicide um, and uh, suicide prevention. Uh, by the way, if you go to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, you can uh, find some out-of-the-darkness walks, probably in your area. Wendy Parmley will be participating in the out-of-the-darkness walk in Richfield on September 6th, if you'd like to meet her in person. Um, and uh, the number is to call us here is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I wonder if we could have you read uh, page three in your book. This is in your prologue. We should set this up that uh, you, you start the book dramatically with a bicycle accident which, uh, in which you hit your head, unfortunately, yes. just below the helmet, Yes, which caused some, some problems. Yes. I um, was riding with my sister and clipped her back tire with my front tire. And, of course, those of you who, who are cyclists know that it's very difficult to to stay up if you clip a tire. And I went down and landed on the bottom rail of a fence right below my helmet, kind of in my brain stem area. I um, suffered severe post-concussive symptoms, still struggle with, with memory and some of those uh, lingering symptoms, balance and dizziness, nausea often. Um, and and was unable to return to my work as a nurse manager at a local hospital and uh, had the opportunity at that time. And actually, the inspiration, the feeling that, that what my new work would be would be to write the story of my, my angel mom. So I will read this um, in the prologue um, as, I, as I began my healing journey with my brain, I also began pinning the story of of my mom. I couldn't turn on the lights in my jumbled brain, and I wished to be removed from this world. But mom whispered in my ear and asked me to look, look with my heart and not with my mind. And she guided me on a journey to share her story, to share the story of my angel mom. With my brain still dark, I looked back nearly 40 years and saw my childhood I saw my brand-new neighborhood and the brand-new split-level homes all lined in a perfect row that led up the long hill to the base of the mountain. I saw kids playing in the streets that divided the houses. I saw them riding their bikes in fields that would soon be transformed into more perfect new homes while their moms baked dinner and their dads worked. The perfect neighborhood in the middle of the perfect town, Happy Valley. At the end of the perfect week, I saw these neighbors leave for weekend camping trips while we pulled out our boat to go water ski in the summer sun. When all the playing was done, we took our baths and cleaned our house and readied ourselves for the perfect Sabbath. On Sunday mornings, we dressed in our best and filed down the hill with all the other neighbors and entered the sacred chapel to worship God with these friends. The Mormon pastor, or bishop as we called him, presided over this little flock of neighbors. The Mormon congregation called a ward, and my dad, a counselor or advisor to the bishop, sat next to him on the stand. We partook of broken bread and water in remembrance of a Savior who we were told could wash away all sins. 
But surely none of my neighbors had sins. They all lived in perfect houses that looked just like mine and wore perfectly pressed clothes to this perfect little church at the bottom of the hill. It doesn't matter that this was a Mormon community in Happy Valley. It could be any community where we put on our masks and hide the truth, where we close the shades of our perfect little homes and turn out the lights so that no one can see. Yeah, that's. I think that probably would take any of us to our neighborhood, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter where it is. Could be in Happy Valley and Mormon country or wherever it is. We think the person next door has it perfect, right? Yep. And we yep. we tend to want to hide our own, whatever it is. Exactly. Uh, which exacerbates the problem, I think, right? You know, it does. It yeah. does. We cover it up. We put on our smiles. We go to work. We go to church. We go to school, and we don't reach out. We don't reach out for help. And if we're we're covered with our own mask. We can't reach out to help another. We have a caller on the line. This is Stacy. I'll ask uh, Mrs. Parmley to put on her headphones so you can hear this. Stacy, uh, welcome to the program. Glad you called. Hi. I hope you all can hear me okay. Yes. Great. The question I have for Wendy is, um, what is the church doing to provide uh, support groups or opportunities for the congregations to talk about either depression or mental illness and um, a support for, you know, potential suicide and awareness. So I was just wondering if there is, um, you know, a joint effort between the community and the church in addressing this. And I'll take my answer um, offline. Okay, thank you, Stacy. Appreciate your call. Uh, by the thank way, you, you. Uh, you can you can call as Stacy did. Uh, Toll free number anywhere you're listening is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Our topic is suicide. Uh, the book is Hope After Suicide. Wendy Parmley is the author, and she's in studio with us. Well, Stacy, I think that last year's talk by Elder Holland really set the stage for us to be much more open in dialoguing about mental mental illness, as he reached out to others to choose life over death and to embrace our neighbors who suffer with mental illness. There are different um, support groups in the community, but certainly we have a long way to go. The LDS church, per se, through their social or through their family um, services, does not have structured support groups for those who are survivors of suicide loss, and they but they do refer them to community support groups. Um, personally, I am involved in um, a great effort with with professionals across the state to expand those support groups. And the LDS Church, as I as I reached out to them, uh, encouraged their participation as that model of support is developed. Uh, they would, would like to have that information so that they can can encourage those who are suffering to, to participate. Um, I do think that it's something that we need to expand and explore ways that we can be much more open in our congregations about, about this subject. And, and I think uh, the LDS Church is um, trying to get the word out to their lay leaders, the bishops, right, who do counseling, yes. uh, that, that they can turn to 
the LDS social services and such to yes give. and in fact you know Brigham Young University um, on their campus they do have an annual mental health awareness night that they that they sponsor in partnership with other community leaders where they invite the lay you know the lay um, leaders the bishops the uh, pastors from other congregations other churches um, to come and, and learn what the resources are in the communities in which they in in which they preside, um, and this has been very well received with hundreds of participants every year. I wonder if we could go back to, you know, forty years in the aftermath of your mother's death. Um, what was the reaction of the the of the ward, your congregation? Well, of course. Um, the adults were very, very supportive of us as children after we lost our mom. They didn't talk with us about how she died, but they came in, they cleaned, you know, cleaned our home to ready it for our return, to make it appear as though nothing had happened in our home. And um, those were ward members. Those were congregants who who came and and did really awful, dirty work to to clean up. And they welcomed us into their homes. They they brought in casseroles and all of the things that we do when somebody dies. There were more than a thousand people at my mom's funeral. And they they opened their arms and their hearts. They were limited though in what they said. And I think they took their cues from my dad. There was a family meeting about what to tell the children, and it was decided and discussed that they would tell us that she died from a heart attack. Um, I don't think that that would be the case today, but I do think that it's um, and and I do know that that there are some families where that is the case. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it, yeah. but but I do think that we're much more open to discussing at least mental illness. What, uh, applying best practices again, and moving forward 40 years, of course, people are doing the best they knew 40 years ago. We've had more education, more awareness, hopefully. Um, if something like that happened uh, today in, in some congregation, um, and uh, what would you suggest? First of all, the family, and then the, and the ward or the congregation? What would I suggest as the, far as... That they do. How do you talk about this? What do you... I imagine you get get the kids into counseling, or I don't know what to, what to do. Absolutely, um, really, it's the trained professional uh, who is best suited to evaluate what symptoms there may be. Is there post traumatic stress symptoms in the child or in the father, which limits his ability to speaking? You know, in my situation, limits his ability to parent. Uh, providing the skills to that individual to continue to to parent the remaining children um, I think I think would be something that could happen today uh, and not all therapists are equally trained so being able to uh, find one who is adequately suited for the particular individual um, situation there are, support groups through the University of Utah in in our communities here in Utah. Um, There are children's support groups I know in Utah County. Um, 
and and really it's it's reaching out to that professional one-on-one therapist who can then guide and assess the situation um, as far as as far as neighbors and friends and congregants ward members it behooves us all to understand that grief is individual and to not expect somebody to be back to normal within even a few months or a few years in some cases or many years in others. Speaking from my own experience with the ward member that we have um, who still wants to be able to feel safe in talking about her feelings and talking about the day that her husband died. And yet she has read the cues from neighbors and friends that they are weary of hearing that story. So being able to to listen without judgment and to allow that person to speak or to allow that person to sit in silence. Did you experience any of this, especially, of course, you didn't talk about it for many years, right? With, right. with anybody, I guess. Uh, uh, then as you went into therapy and I guess part of the part of it's you you talk in therapy and I don't know whether the therapist tell you know suggest that you talk with those around you about it as well. Yes, actually my therapist was fabulous and he was able to meet me exactly where I was. Here I was this professional nurse manager and had lived a very successful life. I buried my sadness and my sorrow with my work and I was what my children would call a workaholic took that from my father. And um, it was my medicine. Stay busy and you don't get sad. But he, um, my therapist, he had me go and and talk. He had me actually read a passage uh, from my journal that described the death of my mom. And he had me find a few close friends that I could feel were safe to share to share my story with and um and I did that and I did that three times with two friends and my husband and it was harder with my husband actually because I had gone to the bathroom to cry if I ever felt a need for a cry and um and it was it was hard to let him know that I was working on my mom's my mom's death in therapy. But that helped me to um, desensitize myself to those memories. And that was important to reduce the symptoms of PTSD. Uh, I visited, you know, the neighborhood and I, and some of these things he didn't ask me to do. I just felt intuitively that I needed to go to the cemetery or to the neighborhood to be able to drive past the house where we lived to talk with my mom. I I had many conversations with her through this process as I sought out answers. I went and talked with her sister, her last remaining sister, and I talked with cousins who were older than I was, and I talked with my dad, who brought out pictures, he brought out pictures of the funeral. 
He brought out pictures of mom as a teenager when he fell in love with her. He sat for hours with me and shared stories of my mom. And all of that was important to desensitize myself to the trauma. And really, that's what suicide is. It's a trauma. How did you feel about your mother uh, early on? One of the stages of grief is anger. And I, I could see that would be made even worse by suicide. How could you take yourself away from us? That kind of thing. What, what were your feelings about your mother then? And then what have you come to now? My feelings about my mom, I put her on a pedestal. I didn't know where she would end up. Um, I, I thought she would end up in heaven. And actually, a church leader, Ezra Taft Benson, had a conversation with my dad shortly after her death as my dad had the opportunity to escort him. He was president of our church's Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time. And he, as my dad described, looked into the heavens and said, your wife did not end her life. And if you are worthy, you will be in the celestial kingdom with her. And that provided much comfort in that she did not um, commit the final act that ended her life. She was not in her right mind. And I was able to put that in perspective as I tried to find answers, but I put her on a pedestal and I did not feel angry at my mom. I, I was angry at everybody else. And that was, that was clear as a teenager. And, you know, I tried to bottle that up, but it would spew out in, in ways that I sometimes couldn't control as I, you know, might yell at my kids or my husband. Uh, never yelled at anybody at work, but certainly uh, could impact my ability to have patience or um, some of those things that I that I saw as character flaws. And they really were just symptoms of the underlying uh, disorder of PTSD. But um, I thought she was perfect. And it wasn't until, you know, many years later that I realized she wasn't. And that was okay, too, as I went through this healing process. There's a, uh, there's a scene in the book. It's kind of hard to read, but it was a very powerful scene. You're, you're in the process of going through uh, and, and, I don't know, confronting or, or, you know, digging up the past. And you remember a uh, family night where you made a tape. Um, and so you actually go back and your, your father still has this and you're able to hear your mother's voice. They're screaming kids and everything, right? Yes. But you're yes. able to go back and hear your mother's voice. And, and I thought as I read that scene, I don't know if I'd want to. But I would want to, but I wouldn't want to. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was it was somewhat miraculous that we even still had that tape. My dad couldn't remember it. And I, through the course of this discovery process, I had a flash of memory sitting on the bottom stair in our family room, um, bottom stair that led to our family room, and looking across the room and seeing my mom laying on the couch. Now, this was just two weeks before her death. It was the day after Easter, so I think that would have been March 31st, 1975. And I just that flash of memory, I saw her speaking into microphone, and um, I went to my dad and I asked him if he remembered taping what we call a testimony meeting in our family night, and he didn't remember, but he said he would look for the tape. Now it's been 
you know, at this time, it had been 36 years since her death, and he had had several moves. But he went down and he looked through old boxes, and he found, buried in the bottom of one box, he found this old tape with a faded label that said, Family Night. Testimony. And he brought that to me and let me take that. And I remember putting that in and, you know, being frustrated that there was all this crackling. It wasn't the technology that we have today and trying to hear her words. Um, And actually, she was very silent on the tape for the first several minutes as other children participated. My dad participated in sharing his beliefs. And then my little brother, just younger than me, my dad said, you know, Carrie, do you want to do you want to turn? And he said, not until I hear from mom. And so my mom, who had my baby sister on her lap, but was really absent and even trying to quiet my baby sister um, as she laid there on the couch, she said from a, a very far, far away place, said, I'd like to. And I couldn't hardly hear her. And I thought about this. Um, I turned up the stereo volume, and and it was just crackle, 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 and screaming baby, crying baby, chatter in the background. The kids are talking. You know, dad's trying to keep them quiet. Really a typical family night. Um, and, you know, my little brother Drew, don't hit her, followed by an owl, and he's four. Um, and then my mom sniffles. You know, she's crying. She says, I'd like to thank Heavenly Father for each one of you. And she had these long pauses, and it was barely a whisper, this conversation where everything else in the foreground is loud and boisterous and, you know, giggling and laughing, and, and she is just not there. She said, There are many things that we can, that we need to do in order to be good. To be good members of the church. And then another long pause. And it begins with, pause, being loving to one another. Being loving to one another. And not just to me and to dad, but to each other. Long, long pauses. And she closed her testimony. And she handed the microphone back to my dad. And there was all the crackle of that microphone. And my baby sister was crying and babbling and... um, and as I played that tape and heard her voice, it didn't sound like my mom. I couldn't remember her voice. I lost that memory of her voice, you know, fairly quickly. But um, it didn't sound like my mom. It sounded like somebody so distant and so sad and so depressed. And, um, and it gave me new insight. And I... I determined that I was going to to love to love my siblings, to love my family, and to take my mom's plea to love one another. And that was her final message. Her final message in this life was to love one another and and her prayer that we would as a family be able to 
to love. And and um, really, to my family's credit, we have. We love one another. We are all very different. We all dealt with my mom's death in unique ways. We all had our own challenges. We have our own stories to tell, and I don't try to tell my sibling's story. Their story is their story, and when they choose to tell it, they will tell it. Um, but but we love each other, and, and my dad has has determined to keep us together and um, has a family reunion every year. We're up to his place in the mountains every every month or so for family dinners and and he has really tried to mend our broken hearts. We'll uh, we'll leave it there. Um, Much more to be uh, read in the book, Hope After Suicide. Wendy Parmley is the author, and uh, she has joined us in studio. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And you have some resources for people, suicide prevention and help for people who've survived suicide. Uh, We'll put those on our website. Yes, uh, UPR.org. And thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Body Worlds. Animal Inside Out, the new exhibition now at the Leonardo in downtown Salt Lake City. From goats to giraffes, bulls to birds, octopi to ostriches, visitors will discover the form and function of animals both exotic and familiar at Animal Inside Out. Information at theleonardo.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in Catch Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Spencer Tidgen, 753-7880. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now, 10 o'clock.